I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. In this episode of The Trade Guys, we'll comment on the new Deputy Director General appointments at the WTO. Plus, we'll discuss President Biden's address to a joint session of Congress and what he means by his Buy America policies. And The Trade Guys discuss developments at USTR on the TRIPS waiver for COVID vaccines and react to updates on the digital service tax hearings. Stay tuned for all that and much more on this episode of The Trade Guys. Gentlemen, a lot is happening in the trade world. We've got a new WTO appointment. It is the WTO chief has picked Angela Ellard as deputy director. Ellard has been working as a U.S. trade official for nearly 30 years. She was the chief Republican trade counsel for House Ways and Means and has now been, as I said, appointed deputy director general for the WTO. Well, what about it? I'm assuming that you guys, who have also been working in trade for nearly 100 years, no, Angela Ellard. Well, Angela is a great friend of CSIS. <laughs> to our listeners, they're both laughing. There's no uh, volume coming out of their out of their mouths, but they're both laughing hysterically that they've been working in trade for a hundred years. Yes. Yes. Uh, no problem at all. Look, all of us have been laboring in the vineyards uh, of trade for many years. <laughs> uh, but look, uh, Angela is a great friend of CSIS. Has been over the years, uh, but she is a terrific professional. And one of the things that Washington gives too little respect and too little credit to, in my view, are the professional staffers of Capitol Hill, particularly professional committee staff. They are the people who make the place work at a very fundamental level. And Angela has been so effective in her role. I mean, I, I first started working with her, I think, when Bill Archer was chairman of the committee way back in the 90s. She was chief trade counsel then and has uh, has been in that role and has basically been a master of developing and producing legislative language, but importantly, leading a staff of people really very cooperative with the Democratic staff. So she and Catherine Tai had a very close working relationship all during the USMCA negotiations and, and uh, finalization of the, the agreement. There were frictions, no doubt. And uh, over, over the years, the House has been the Ways and Means Committee has had a little more frictions or a few more frictions than the Senate Finance Committee and they're operating because the House is different than the Senate. It's a much more majoritarian body. But having said that, uh, there's a great deal of professionalism uh, that Angela has demonstrated over the years. So I'm, I'm happy to see it. I, I, hope, I hope she loves Geneva and uh, she's certainly a great uh, representative of the United States. Bill? Andrew, you should be happy because I, as I recall, she's from New Orleans. Oh, wow. Yes. All right. Too late, there you go. Yeah. Is she really? I didn't know that. That's great. Roll wave. I mean, she's uh, a good representative of her town. I agree with Scott. Excellent professional, knows where the bodies are buried. Very good at uh, doing all the laboring in the vineyards, really doing all the serious work to get something done uh, without uh, without taking credit. Uh, it's no small accomplishment over there. She survived, as I recall, nine chairmen. Not all of them were Republicans, but that's not easy to do these days when incoming chairmen tend to want to bring in their own team. And uh, I think it's been a real tribute to her professionalism that that hasn't happened uh, with her. It's noteworthy that... Uh, and Gosi is appointed of the four. She's appointed two women, really, for the first time. The other one, we also know, Annabelle Gonzalez, 
who is currently at the Peterson Institute down the street from CSIS. She was Costa Rica's trade minister, so she's essentially filling the, the Latin American slot, if you will. I think Ngozi and, and uh, Angela will get along well. They're both very direct. Mm-hmm. Angela was never uh, reluctant to tell me when I had done something wrong, uh, which in her view was frequent. We're, we're not reluctant either. Well, this is true. <laughs> You're not moving out to a big new job. No, I'm not. I'm just staying here. Staying here in my little old job. <laughs> They'll be good because she knows how to get things done. And I think I found her having extraordinary discipline, self-discipline in focusing on the task. I once ran into her at a reception uh, the, the the evening after she had done one of those uh, appearances with the staff from the, the the two staff from Ways and Means, Democrat and Republican, and the, the two staff from Finance, Democrat and Republican, known as the big four, two or three times a year, they, you know, they, they do a dog and pony show. And I said, you know, you did a great job of saying absolutely nothing. And she said, that's the best compliment you could give me. That's exactly what I was trying to do. And she is superb at maintaining discipline in public. And I think that will uh, redound to the organization's benefit. She'll be great. I bet Janet Yellen would have wanted to uh, get that compliment yesterday. She could learn from that. Yes. Yeah. Congressional staff, if they survive as long as Angela did, they master that particular skill. So, uh, but we're, we're happy for her and we wish her well. I hope she, she enjoys living and working in Geneva. It's a great city and uh, it's, it's good representation for the United States. So the other two deputy directors that were appointed, one was from France and the other's from China. Is there any particular reason for that or are those two particularly qualified people? The reason is that, well, it, there's no rule about it, but the unwritten rule is that the four deputies come from the geographic regions that are not represented by the director. So under Azevedo, there was no Latin American deputy because he was from Brazil, uh, but there was an African deputy and a Chinese and American and a European uh, under Ngozi, there will be no African deputy, but instead there will be a Latin American deputy. There's always been an American one, and there's always been a European one. Uh, the fight tends to loom with Asia because both the Chinese and the Indians believe they should have one. And Ngozi surprised some people, I think, by going with the Chinese uh, candidate because Azevedo had one, a Chinese candidate, for eight years as well. So the Chinese are kind of developing a lock on the on the the regional deputy slot. I don't know if that's permanent or or what the dynamic was, it, but uh, I think there were a number of people that were kind of expecting an Indian this time around, and that didn't happen. And now that the selection's over, it's important that uh, the, that they get to work on the, on the agenda of the WTO. And it looks like a team of people who have been effective uh, in uh, in their roles in the past. So I think it's 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 a good lineup. It's good news, and uh, WTO's they're in a position they need to deliver some results. The Chinese guy was China's ambassador to the WTO. Angela, we've talked about. Annabelle has a long career. She was a trade minister, which is, I think, an important mark in her career. She was a candidate for director general eight years ago. Uh, didn't make it to the end, but uh, she got partway along the way. And she's had, I think, a very active and distinguished time at, at uh, Peterson Institute. And before that, she was at the World Bank doing some trade and development related work. Speaking of trade in Congress, President Biden Uh, just last week gave his first joint address to the Congress. And in his first speech, he laid out his administration's legislative policies. He talked about his Buy America policies. And he said, this is a quote, there's no reason why American workers can't lead the world in production 
of electric vehicles and batteries. And he said, the American jobs plan is going to create billions of good paying jobs, jobs Americans can raise a family on. And then he really delivered the, the key line where he said, all the investments in the American jobs plan will be guided by one principle, by American. Guys, what about this? Who does this sound like? I wrote a column on this this week, and I'm in the middle of dealing with predictable blowback from people who think that I was wrong. I injected a note of skepticism um, about what he was doing. I mean, he's right. There's no reason why all that stuff can't be built in America. There are a number of reasons why it's not built in America. And simply saying that it has to be is not necessarily going to, going to get us there. 97% of federal government procurement is domestic. And that's a little misleading. Uh, and if you want to understand that, read my column. It, it, it's a little misleading because it counts some parts and components as American that, that are not. But it still suggests that, that the U.S. government foreign procurement is, is limited. And I was just reading a GAO report. Every couple of years, GAO does a report on this. And uh, it's very hard to figure out exactly what gets bought and sold. But um, it looks like of the U.S. government procurement contracts that were given to foreign parties that were located in foreign countries, 80 percent of them uh, came from the Defense Department. And most of them uh, <laughs> involved the Middle East for kind of obvious reasons. I mean, we sell them a lot of stuff, but we have a presence there. And that requires a lot of procurement to support the presence that's there. And I don't know that that's necessarily going to change. We're going to supply the Fifth Fleet for, with stuff to, you know, to eat, with, uh, you know, toilet paper, with linens, things like that. You're probably going to do it from Bahrain, I would think, rather than ship everything from the United States. Maybe not. It's not a big deal. You know, it, it's a small deal. It's a big deal for some industries. It's surely a big deal for the, uh, the rail car, the subway car business, because there's a special Buy American provision there. And those are, those are big contracts. If Biden succeeds in replacing the entire federal vehicle fleet with electric vehicles and says they have to be American, that will be a big deal. Now, that's going to require, I think, somebody in the Congress appropriating money uh, to replace all the vehicles. You know, you don't just give them away. And that will probably encourage companies to auto companies to develop supply chains that are uh, for particularly battery supply chains because that's such an important part of the car, that are uh, domestic um, as opposed to imported. And that'll raise an interesting question, though, which is how you count. You know, we, we've just been through, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, this battle between SK and LG battery companies. They're both Korean companies, uh, and they're both making batteries in the United States. So are those batteries American batteries, or are they Korean batteries? And I think the answer is it's going to depend on what rules uh, the Biden administration develops on, on how you count the inputs that go into the batteries. And uh, where does, how do you count the, uh, the lithium, uh, where that comes from? Chances are it doesn't come from here. What about the steel and the aluminum? Uh, where does that come from? So it'll be interesting to see how they set up the rules for this and how they choose to count the end product. Well, and perhaps not so coincidentally, President Biden just appointed Celeste Drake, former AFL-CIO official, as his new Made in America director. Maybe she'll be the one in charge of counting. She's in charge of waivers. Uh, she'll be good. I, I don't know Celeste well, but she's very competent and she's a, a very uh, good articulator of her position. She had a long history of working with organized labor. 
as I understand her immediate job, it's to deal with waiver requests that come in under the existing rules. And I know there's thousands of them that come in, like 80,000 or something a year, mostly from the Pentagon, uh, because there are, you can get a waiver. You can, if the most obvious case is if it's something that's not made in the United States. But, the, you know, there are other reasons as well. And uh, the Biden uh, people believe that waivers have been too liberally granted in the past. So they want her to maximize the amount of U.S. made iron, steel and other products paid for with U.S. tax dollars. That's what they want her to do. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it'll come in the form of minimizing waivers. But look, that's one of the things the Biden administration has demonstrated already is, for them, personnel is policy. And so if you want to make a change uh, through specific efforts, then you put the people who have the clearest idea of what the administration wants in the positions that manage uh, the waiver process. For instance, you don't leave it to chance. You don't leave it away. So so that, that part makes sense to me. And I, I agree with Bill. Uh, Celeste has been a very effective advocate. So I, th- I think... They're getting what they want there. Yeah, that, that last statement is important because almost every politician in America talks about Buy America. I mean, I'm, uh, consumers don't pay a lot of attention to it when they shop, but uh, everybody thinks it's a good idea and it's a popular thing politically. Historically, it has never translated into much. The Biden people seem determined to make it a much bigger deal. I mean, you've got this, as Andrew said, directly from the president. They really want to transform the way the government purchases stuff. And they're going to change the rules to do that. And the challenge for companies will be, you know, is that do we sell the government enough to to go through all the new hoops and hurdles that are going to be created? And, you know, if you're going to sell electric cars and the government's going to buy hundreds of thousands of them, you might want to do that. On the other hand, for a lot of products, you know, the civilian market is so much bigger than the federal market. All right. Well, guys, this is the question I have, though. So because there is bipartisan will and everybody wants to buy American, is it feasible to expect that that President Biden is going to be able to implement buy America policies? Well, look, there's no free lunch. Okay, we already have a lot of American made products that are purchased by the federal government. At some point, diminishing returns set in. So essentially making the rest of purchasing from domestic sources, a lot more expensive than it would be otherwise. So so what will happen, and this is where a Congress might come into it, is appropriators are going to have to deal with the fact that uh, you'll, you'll pay a substantial price premium to get sort of from what, whatever the right number is, whether it's 97% or 90% if you make the right content adjustments, getting that last 3 to 10% could be really expensive for taxpayers. That means there are other things you can't do. And so that's where we'll, we have to get to it. Uh, so the second thing is we haven't talked at all about supply chains in this. And the fact is many of these components uh, are in America-made vehicles, American-made products. There's, there's lots of important components in almost every final good that's produced in the United States. A trillion dollars or so of what we import every year are intermediates. So. Uh, it's really a matter of where you where you draw the line, and and uh, you know I, while Diogenes was looking for an honest man, I'm looking for a politician that understands diminishing returns, and so we'll find out if any of you do. So where do we think this is actually going, Bill? I think they're determined to rewrite the rules on parts and components. Uh, I think they would like to increase the content uh, percentage that's required for a product to be considered America American. Right now, it's 55 percent. It was 50 for years, and Trump bumped it up in one of his 
last executive orders before leaving office to 55. I think they may want to go higher. I'm not sure they'll get away with it. The, the rules involving when a pardon component is treated as foreign and when it's treated as domestic are, are very complicated. And it's not entirely a value-added analysis. In some cases, if a subcomponent is included in a component, it takes on the characteristic of the, of the component, which means it's all American, even though the content, the subcomponents may not have been American. It's counted as, as American. The Biden people seem to want to go to sort of a value-added accounting system where you actually try to count the actual value of each of the items in the finished product, say the car, uh, and sort of add it all up and see if you hit 55 or whatever percent they put. That's really complicated to do because these are difficult supply chains. And it also raises the question of, of where you draw the line. You know, uh, a big a big issue for cars is chips. I mean, we've been hearing, we've been talking about the, the chip shortage. So how do you determine the origin of a chip? Is it the IP that went into it? Is it the plastic? Is it the silicone? You know, is it the sand that started out as a silicone? Where do you draw your line in terms of, of deciding what whether the chip is foreign or domestic? I mean, they've just got a whole boatload of questions that they're going to have to answer. The thing I learned in, in government and on the Hill is there's always unexpected consequences. And there was a classic case of this in 09, because when Obama's stimulus bill went through, Congress added fairly restrict, uh, fairly strict by American requirements uh, for the infrastructure projects in that bill. And they immediately ran into this problem. I don't forget the exact item. It was in Minnesota and it was some environmental water control system and they needed a pump, a pump part that was only made in Canada. Nobody in the United States made it. And that halted the entire project because under the terms of the, the bill, they couldn't procure it from Canada. And, you know, so Buy America sounds like a really good idea. And then you run into these things. This is why you have waiver clauses, you know. And, and why Celeste's job is going to end up being probably a little more complicated. Well, here's another complicated issue to throw at you guys. And this relates directly to COVID. India, South Africa, and other developing countries are out there leading a push for something called a trade-related aspects of intellectual property rights waiver, so-called TRIPS waiver, arguing that it's the only way to ensure fair, equitable, and affordable access to COVID products. This puts the question to the Biden administration, as more people voice support for a TRIPS waiver, is the Biden administration going to have any flexibility in its approach towards IP sharing? What do you guys think? This one really steams me. Scott's talked about this before more coherently than I have. The waiver is not going to solve the problem. You know, it's, it's, it's a production problem and it's a delivery problem. It's a last mile problem and nobody's asking that question. This is why you're steamed. This is why I'm steamed. There were pictures in the paper last week of, you know, plane loads of, of uh, vaccine-related equipment landing in New Delhi from the United States. This is good. Nobody asked the question, what does it do? What happens to it after they take it off the plane? You know, it's not the United States' problem after it gets off the plane. It's the Indian government's problem. Where do they send it? Do they have an infrastructure to get it out there uh, and to get it delivered and get shots put in people's arms? And none of that has anything to do with IP. You know, it has to do with logistics more than anything else. I would just say, and then Scott will give you a much fuller explanation of this than I can, that it appears is what Biden is trying to do and what Ambassador Tai is trying to do is to basically push the drug companies to supply more vaccines on their own. 
and therefore obviate the need to debate the waiver. I don't think they want to do the waiver. There's a lot of good reasons not to do the waiver. It undermines the whole U.S. position on protection of intellectual property uh, that we've been uh, nurturing for 30 years. And it, it undermines it on behalf of countries, South Africa, India, who have done nothing but undermine the WTO since it began and don't need the waiver, but are, are trying to use it as a device to further undermine intellectual property rules in general, because they would prefer that there not be any so that they can use uh, other people's IP with impunity. And I think what Catherine's trying to do is she's talking to all the CEOs of the drug companies. And I think the message is, can you guys do more to get this out there, to start exporting? And I think it's paying off. You've seen several of them announce that they have plans. Yeah, look, there's uh, the, the first, the vaccines are, are a miracle of modern science. Uh, the fact that we have one, it was, it was proven safe and effective and in distribution less than a year from identifying the genomic sequence. That's a miracle and that's amazing. Second, the vaccine manufacturers are doing a great job of scaling up. Uh, they're partnering with one another. So in this case, I, I believe it was Merck that had ex excess capacity and they partnered with J&J uh, &J to increase production, ramp it up fast. So, so they took their own capacity and, and dedicated it to, other pro to a product of a competitor. You've had last week Moderna, which has one of the successful two-dose vaccines uh, that's, in, that's in the market, announced an investment to triple the, the production. Uh, next year, they'll be up to three billion doses of COVID vaccine. So the companies are, are doing exactly what you'd expect successful, innovative companies who are being rewarded. And in fact, in fact, they're being rewarded because they're adding value to society. Okay, the vaccine's key to getting economies restarted. So we all agree with that. The, the TRIPS waiver is a complete sideshow and it's really annoying. I mean, look, if there were a shortage of, of ball bearings in South Africa, they'd ask for a TRIPS waiver. I'm telling you, I'm just so annoyed by it's. This is the solution to every every known problem, and it actually solves solves none of the problems associated with with mass vaccination. So I think the ambassador's tie is doing the right thing. If it were me, I would create some shiny object to dangle in front of them and let the let the vaccine distribution problem solve itself, which I think it will in private hands. But this is an annoyance to the trading system and. Uh, uh, whether or not there are members of Congress who follow along with the with the uh, the parade that India and uh, South Africa started, uh, I think the right thing to do is is to work on actually solving the problems that actually exist in vaccine distribution. So you guys are both ticked off because countries in the world are using the pandemic as a way of trying to leverage our IP in general, not just for vaccines. They're trying to set a precedent here where they can dip in whenever they want, is basically what you're saying. As you pointed out at the top of the show, neither Bill nor I was born yesterday. We've <laughs> seen this movie before. Okay. Yeah. It's just bore it's just tedious at this point. With, yeah. with these particularly with these two economies. Right. It's ironic for India because they're they have been, I think, the largest vaccine producer in the world. They made a policy decision early on because they thought they'd conquered COVID and they started exporting a lot of it. And the result now is that they're caught short because of their own policy actions. But they've already got the capabilities. So they just need to ramp up again is what you're saying. What Modi apparently told Biden when they talked is they have a shortage of ingredients. And that's something that we can help with. 
that doesn't involve an IP waiver. It means shipping them the ingredients. You know, it's not that complicated. Well, I hope we can ship it to them faster than my desk comes because I keep hearing from the people I bought my desk from that there's a global shipping crisis or something or it's stuck in some port. So I sure, sure hope we can expedite. A lot of that going on these days. Probably on board that ship that blocked the Suez Canal that's now impounded. Yes, the Egyptians impounded it. it yeah, so they're, they're... it's going to be a long time before yep. I see that desk. I, I better start building something myself, man. Gosh. Um, finally, guys, let's talk about the digital services tax hearings that are, I believe, launching today. Um, what's going on with that and why are these so important? The hearings are a follow-on to the Section 301 investigation that was completed by the previous administration that found that the, a number of, I think, eight countries that engaged in unjustifiable or restrictive practices that disadvantage us. And uh, they then left office without acting on, on it, um, except with respect to France, where they uh, developed a, a, a set of retaliatory tariffs, but then did not impose them. So it's all on Ambassador Ty right now to figure out what to do. I think you can see where it's going, though, because the, the most significant thing that happened is that the Biden administration came in and, and basically reinvigorated the negotiations over a collective solution. They dropped one of the previous administration's demands, which basically was that the tax, be, uh, one, of the, the, one of the taxes under discussion be optional, which nobody else was willing to agree to. Uh, we've abandoned that demand, and Secretary Yellen's put forward a a new and, and, and different and, and much simpler proposal for a minimum global tax, uh, which has been, uh, I think, fairly well received by others. I mean, nobody's going to jump on board and say, fine, there has to be a negotiation. But it was not dismissed out of, out of hand, even by the Europeans. And I think the talks have, uh, are restarting. And I think that uh, the U.S. is engaged constructively. I think everybody believes that what, what Ambassador Tai will do is have the hearings uh, and not impose anything, any retaliation, uh, as long as the talks are going on, because now that they've been restarted, that is the most sensible thing to do. I think the issue is going to come down to whether the Europeans uh, are going to want to have their cake and eat it too, in, in the sense that they're going to say, well, we can agree to you know an American minimum global corporate tax uh, on big companies, but we want to keep our own digital services tax specifically on those companies. The whole point of the United States proposal was to not have a digital specific tax, but have a tax on corporations that operate, you know, a minimum tax on corporations that operate globally. Uh, and they suggested doing it. They had a formula that would essentially hit the, the top 100, a substantial number of which are American. It's not like it's some sneaky move to get us off the hook. You know, I think most of them are American, but it's a lot broader than, you know, than, than the six companies that the Europeans were targeting. Uh, and it would hit some European companies. Always and everywhere, tax policy is about finding a source uh, that can be easily, where taxes can be easily extracted without upsetting the broad majority of, of voters. That's, that's the way tax policies worked for years. Uh, the, uh, and uh, it's worked here that way as well. The, the fact that these, the, these companies are the targets of taxation in Europe, they happen, most of them happen to be American companies and they've been very profitable, should surprise no one. For here, the, what I'm amused by is that it was Donald J. Trump who revived, or his administration revived the use of Section 301 
as a remedy. And uh, I look at the, I step back from the situation and say, well, what else are you going to do? Uh, and clearly talks at the OECD are fine, but this isn't a trade issue. You can't, you can't have a normal trade dispute. Um, and so I think what you have is the Biden administration trying to manage a, a negotiation, which is the, which is ultimately would, would have the most durable outcome. And they're, they're holding on to 301 and basically saying, Hey, thanks, Don. <laughs> we'll use this if we need it because, uh, it turned out to be a reasonably effective tool. Well, and it shows the importance of interagency cooperation. This is a, you know, the Treasury Department is the negotiator here. Ambassador Tai is not the negotiator, but Tai has got the, uh, has got the, the leverage with these tariffs. So they have to work together. That's, that's a good thing. Well, guys, this has been quite educational. We've covered a lot of subjects. And I'm glad that you guys got the steaming out of you. And so you can go on with your days, you know, with the rest of the day now and, and not be ticked off at the world. And, you know, this has been kind of therapeutic, I think, for both of you. It's a new day in a lot of ways. And, uh, you know, Bill, <laughs> Bill the uh, native of Illinois, ought to be happy that Justin Fields is the, is the quarterback of the future for, uh, uh, for the Chicago Bears. Chicago Bears. Yep. A quality human oh, yeah. being and a, a top-class yep. player. So glad, glad to see him do well. And my, my pick, my early pick for Rookie of the Year, I'll say it now. Uh, a lot of people passed on this guy, and uh, boy, oh boy, are they going to be bummed that they did. So what does this mean for the Bears' season? How far are they going to get? They're going to make the playoffs. What the Bears really need is to make sure Aaron Rodgers is not playing in there in the AFC North. Or get him into the AFC somewhere. Just yeah. get him out of the NFC. That's right. That's right. <laughs> that's that's called moving the goalposts. We're changing the rules. Well <laughs> to be You can't win this way. Let's change the rules so we can win. Fan is short for fanatic, remember. That's right. <laughs> that's right. Well, it was a heck of a draft, that's for sure. Guys, thanks a billion and uh we'll talk next week. Okay. Okay. To our listeners, if you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the Trade Guys react to it. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.